0: Hi, I'm Penny Arcade, and I'm so excited to be here on RTE Radio 1. Longing lasts longer is a refutation of nostalgia. You know how when you try to talk about the beautiful things that are being taken away in our society and in our countries, and people accuse you of nostalgia, how annoying that is? So this is about longing, and longing is very different from nostalgia. It's about gentrification, but it's not just about the gentrification of buildings and neighborhoods. It's about the gentrification of ideas, and it's a comedy. Well, the thing with gentrification and the gentrification of ideas, which my friend Sarah Shulman took a jumping-off point from me and wrote an entire book called Gentrification of the Mind, is the way marketing has overtaken our lives that anything that has any touch of authenticity is absorbed. So most people will know, you know, until like the late 1980s, the only people who had tattoos were bikers and uh, strippers and, you know, 'er ne'er-do-wells. And now everybody has a tattoo, but everybody has the same tattoo, so they can all be different like everybody else. So there's the commodification of rebellion which has taken place so that it's very hard to have any kind of resistance, any kind of resistance movement. For instance, what happened here with the uprising in 1916 was acts of authenticity. There's been an asphalting over of reality so that it's very hard for there to be true individuality. As a matter of fact, individuality is an endangered trait, and that's one of the things Longing lasts Longer is about as well. It's about how mediocrities become the new black, and I think that a lot of us feel that even very young people who haven't had the history, who haven't seen this change that's taken over, like that we all feel like we're living at the bottom of a bowl of oatmeal... They feel it as well. Everyone feels it. So the show is basically a vindication for people over 50, and then it's a context provider for people under 50. One of the most exciting things in making my work is that I get to work with a lot of rock and roll, which is, you know, I am one of those people whose life was saved by rock and roll, you know. Being 13 years old in 1963, under the covers, listening to my transistor radio. So with my collaborator, Steve Zettner, who I've been working with 25 years this year, we started working with an idea of fragmentation because there's a lot of fragmentation in our world now. It's almost impossible to have a complete thought anymore. So for literally 20 years, we've been working with the fragmentation of popular music. So Longing lasts Longer has this amazing sound score. It's cultural criticism you can dance to. So it has this score of the best music from the past 50 years that emotionally underscores the words, the texts. So fundamentally, my idea behind it is that in those moments when that music is playing... You, the audience, stop being an audience and you have your own memories, your own attachments, your own identifications with those songs. You know, when I met Keith Richards in 1994, when I was in Australia, I said to him, I've used a lot of your music. I said, and I don't get the rights either. I said, because I've had to listen to this stuff for 50 years. And he started laughing because he's a really good guy. And um, I don't know how... Well, it would have gone over with Mick Jagger. But at any rate, that's the important thing with the music. So people love the sound score. People always ask me if they can get a copy of the sound score. And they always ask me if they can get a copy of the script because there's a lot of ideas in the work. But, you know, ideas don't have to be ponderous. You know, thinking is sexy. That's my... Motto, I'm trying to bring back thinking. Hey, let's bring back thinking. The thing is that all of that music is deeply meaningful to me because I'm one of those people who lives my life with music and through music. I think that's very, also very. It's, it's all generations have experienced that, but I think people who grew up in the 60s experienced it more than anyone else because the music that was going on in the 60s... First of all, we all thought that Van Morrison, Bob Dylan were speaking directly to us and that the real armament of the revolution of love was music. So that while I didn't... I wasn't present at the recording of any of those songs and don't even really personally know any of those people, except for Iggy Pop, who I do know. There is something that's extremely personal for me. But, you know, I'm like that with any music that I hear. When I first heard the Pogues, you know, that spoke so deeply to me. You know, if I'm in a bad mood, I'll listen to one song 35 times in a row. And believe me, it helps.
1: You're on the right on the wall. When you came up to me, shall you hit it? And-
0: It's kind of fascinating that I haven't been in Ireland for 20 years, which is a little strange because hardly any audience in the world has um, embraced my work the way the Irish do. And I have to tell you the kind of honor it is to be a writer and an actor and to have your words heard by an Irish audience. It's a completely different thing because the power of the word is real to an Irish audience. So when I first came here in 1994, I originally came to the Galway Festival and then was brought back to the Olympia, where I did five weeks, eight shows a week, and then went to the Everyman in Cork, which was, of course, an incredible experience. I was bringing the show Bitch, Dyke, Fag, Hag, Whore, which is my sex and censorship show, which was fundamentally about the fact that as human beings, there's only four things or five things that are different from one another. You know, there's not 30 things that make us different. And when we did the show in Galway, the presenters were worried because of the title of the show, and I had strippers in the show, and there was all this uh, gay, queer content in the show. And they didn't really promote it because they were afraid that there was going to be a backlash and people with having doing the rosary on the sidewalk, you know. And um, I was really concerned about it because we didn't have, they hadn't sold any tickets. And then the day of, by 3 p.m., they had sold the show out for most of the five performances. And the thing that was most interesting was that the audience was, as it always is, 75% heterosexual. And people loved that show. And people say to me, well, how could you do a show with so much queer content? and have those heterosexual audiences. Well, that's the reality. It's only 10% of people are gay, right? But the fact is human beings are interested in each other. So if people are going to tune in to watch shows about the Serengeti and of pygmies in Central Africa, of course they want to know about a a gay perspective as well and about which at that time was kind of a secret life and a secret world away from the mainstream. And I was very touched coming back here 20 years later, performing here in Dublin and in Cork and having so many audience members coming up to me and saying, I saw that show 20 years ago and I'm still living with the values from that show because a really central part of my work is to create community. There's only two kinds of performers in the world. There's the ones who want to be worshipped and adored, and there's the ones who want to be friends with everybody. And sadly, that's sort of handled by the time you're nine years old. You don't change. But I'm that person who really wants to be with people. And while I don't believe that we can change the world, I believe we can change the world around us. So it's also been a very, very great honor for me and for Steve Zettner to be acknowledged as having a part in gay marriage being passed here in Ireland, which is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal achievement of the people. And you know what I always say about the Irish, if you're funny and you tell the truth, you can't go wrong in Ireland. In 1994, when I did Bitch, Dyke, Fag, Hag, Whore uh, at the Galway Festival, on one of the performances, a young woman ran in and she was very adamant she had to save seats. And I was like, OK, relax, save seats. And then in, oh no, 20 minutes or 30 minutes into the show, or maybe a little bit more than that, I was talking about being bisexual in a lesbian world and that. A lot of lesbians don't like bisexual women. They think there's something wrong with us. They think we're not trying hard enough. They think if you just tried a little harder, you would be a lesbian. And as I was saying this, I was talking about, you know, the greater visibility that lesbians were having in the world with the concept of lipstick lesbians, etc. And I said, well, lesbians have such a great look. Well, they all look like young gay men. And I looked down in that front row, and there were like six young women sitting there, dressed in the kind of way that young lesbians dressed at that time in their spare time. You know, jeans and crisp shirts tucked in uh, with T-shirts underneath. And I said, hey, come up here. And I brought these girls up on stage, and they came up on stage. And I started interviewing them about who they were. And a couple of them taught school, and you know, they each said what their jobs were. And afterwards, I sorry, I don't remember the name of this man. And He was a man who would have been in his late 50s or 60s at the time. And he's a heterosexual man. And he came up to me. I had met him before the show. And he was weeping. And I just didn't know what to make of it. And he said to me, he said, you, you don't know what you've done here tonight. He said, this has never been done in Ireland. He said, do you know the bravery of those young women to stand up in public in a town the size of Galway and to say that they are lesbians and that they teach school and they work in our hospital? And I was just gobsmacked. I mean, it was, I I had had no idea. So coming back this year... During the celebrations of the uprising, which, of course, is, you know, a story that worldwide, for all of us who are part of the resistance against infamy and subjugation of the human spirit, the uprising, you know, is uh, such a powerful historical marker. And for me to bring Longing Less Longer to the Abbey, no less. In 2016, I mean, I have small rewards in my life, you know, and that's the kind of reward I go for rather than the the big paycheck. ¶¶ So for the past 17 years, uh, Steve Zettner, my longtime collaborator, and I have been working on a video project, which is called the Lower East Side Biography Project, stemming the tide of cultural amnesia. And in that project, I interview highly self-individuated people, not necessarily artists, but people who have really lived their own life as an example of of self-individuation, because now that there isn't this, what used to be the intergenerational aspect of life, right? You're young, you come into the world, you meet people who are older who give you context, so you don't have to make all the same mistakes they did, right? Now, one of the things that longing lasts longer deals with is this monogenerationalism that's going on in the world where everybody in their twenties only knows people in their twenties, everybody in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties only knows people in their same age group. So this project I believe should be done everywhere. And because it's how we preserve the real secret history of our communities. The Lower East Side Biography Project is about that wonderful Tapestry of art and criminality. You know, of course I'm not talking about murderers and people who rob old ladies. I'm talking about the things that are outside of society. You have a real art scene, you know, when you have one third artist against two thirds people who will never write a play, never paint a painting, but people for whom art is vitally important. And it's much harder to live an artistic life than it is to be an artist. And not very many artists these days, or perhaps ever, really live artistic lives. It's a very special quality. If you do not have a functioning criminal scene in your art world, you have academia. And while academia is a reflection of the art world, it will never be the art world. So you can watch that. You can tune in on Cyber. We broadcast every Monday at 11 p.m. and, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Lori Side Biography Project, and there's like five minute snips. We've done about a hundred and fifty people. We've done, you know, interviews with people that no one else has done interviews with it, which is scary, which tells you a lot about the real world, you know, because there are people who are so important in, in the culture. One of them, for instance, is Tom O'Horgan. Tom O'Horgan is the director who directed Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Lenny. He had never been interviewed. I mean, he had been interviewed probably by the press, but no one had ever done an in-depth interview with him. And he you know, spoke to us about, you know, he had started out as a professional harp player, you know, on the Arthur Godfrey Show, and he passed away a few years ago. And if we hadn't interviewed him, his ideas, his presence would be lost. You know, sometimes to just be in the presence of a genius for an hour is enough. And I think that is a motivation behind the Lower East Side Biography Project. That one-on-one thing, when you take out the interviewer and you're just one-on-one, well, like right now, you're one-on-one with me. There's something about us as humans, our empathy our ability to feel another person and to have another person through their voice or their words or their writing open up worlds to us. In 1994, when I did Bitch, Dyke, Fag, Egg, Whore at the Olympia, that audience was middle-aged people. And it was so incredible because it was North Dubliners who could ill afford the 17 pounds that they were charging. But they were dragging their younger children. It was like people in their 50s and 60s. Women dragging their 25- and 35-year-old kids who were like, My mother's dragging me to a show with strippers. But when the dance break happened, because I had this big dance break for the public, it would be all of these middle-aged women on stage dancing and singing to Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. And, you know, I believe that everywhere I did that show, in Galway, in Cork, and in Dublin, that stage was the first ones up there, were middle-aged Irish women who'd had enough. And I believe that if I had an effect on the referendum for gay marriage, it would have been those populations of middle-aged women who felt downtrodden in society and identified with gay people. And I think that was my small contribution. the Irish, when they are presented with realities, they will always back the truth. And I think that is a result of Catholicism, because some of us who grew up Catholic, there's no point in being a lapsed Catholic, because the religion is designed to drag you down. But what you must be is a transcended Catholic, where you come in with the highest ideals of Catholicism, the highest ideals of Christ. And this is a beautiful thing. This is liberation theology. And I think that operating underneath everything in Ireland is that liberation theology.